be fruitful and multiply. This was the commandment that God gave to humanity, the very first commandment that God gave to humanity, to go out and make more of yourselves, fill the world up with humanity. And so they did. People began to multiply and fill up the earth. And that's where Genesis chapter 6 begins. It talks about people multiplying, answering that call, answering that commandment that God had given to them, and filling up the world. And it says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were very attractive, and they started having babies, and they started spreading all over the world, and the world began to be filled with people. And as humanity was multiplying, they took something with them. Now, what we were supposed to be taking with us, the reason why that was the first commandment, as we learned in Genesis chapter 1, is that God inscribed his own image on every single person. That he created humanity in the image of God, in the image of God he created them, male and female, he created them. And so the idea there is that as humanity spreads throughout the world, we'll take the image of God with us. And as we saw last week, as we looked at Genesis chapter 5 and this genealogy showing generations of people coming forth into the world, they were made, each and every one of them, in the image of God. But as we also saw last week, they were also carrying something else with them when they did. And in Genesis chapter 6, we see that not only were people filling the world, but everywhere that they went, they were taking with them sin and wickedness and evil. Verse 5 there says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so chapter 6 paints this picture of not only people being fruitful and multiplying, but sin, like the virus it is, spreading from generation to generation, from person to person, all over the world. As far as humanity reached, that's where sin would reach as well. To the point where Genesis says that on their heart was only evil continually. And so here we have a passage of scripture where it looks like everything is falling apart. That everything is starting to unravel. This isn't the first we've seen of sin. We had Genesis 3 with sin in the Garden of Eden. We had Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel and murder and, and the divided community that came as a result of that. We've seen sin in small examples. But here now in Genesis chapter 6, it seems like all of the goodness of God's creation is coming unraveled and everything is falling apart. And in this passage of Scripture, where everything seems to be crumbling, we're going to find that God is still revealing himself, still introducing himself, still helping us see who he is from the inside out, and especially in a passage like we're going to read today, surprising us with who he really is. And so that's exactly what we're going to see today. As we continue looking at this passage of Scripture where God is introducing himself to us, we're going to see this surprising characteristic of a God who regrets. And so our passage today is Genesis chapter 6. And let's read together verses 1 through 8. And this is the word of God. 
when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and the daughters were born to them, the, son of God saw, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father God, we are always thankful for your word. And I'm thankful as we've been going through these early chapters of the book of Genesis, just how surprising you are. How often you reveal parts of yourself that don't fit in with the narratives that we have or the ideas that we, we want or the things that we have deep within us. But these characteristics of yourself that are so distinctly you. And so, Father, I pray as we look at this painful passage of Scripture today, that you would indeed help us to see you as you really are. To put all of our preconceived notions to the side and be in awe and amaze as we see you in a way that we haven't yet through this entire book. And so God, teach us to worship you in the fullness of who you are and help us to see the profound tragedy and beauty of this passage as we go through it. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I've mentioned this already once as we've been going through this series, but I am someone who really thrives when systems are in place. I like having a system for everything that happens because I'm not the most disciplined person. And so I like some extra things to help me along the way. So I've got structures, I've got patterns, I've got rhythms that I can fit into. And if things are going well, if I'm productive and everything is going pretty successfully, that usually means that I've got some nice systems in place. And when things are falling apart, that usually means that I'm either too lazy or don't have time or haven't put the effort into creating some sort of system to keep me doing the things that we're supposed to do. The mornings at our house have become a really strange thing because they can be chaotic, but we don't think anymore. We just rise, or the children think, and scream, and yell, and fight, and play, and do all kinds of things in the 30 minutes before we leave in the morning, but we just kind of get up and do our thing, because we know who's got to do what, and it's nice, because I walk out of the house thinking, I don't know that I've had a thought at all this morning. I'm just moving in this rhythm and in this system, because these things help us out, and we like to think in systems, too. We like to have patterns to our thought. We like to, to put containers around things that help us to understand them. And we like to do that, not only in the way that we approach God and worship God. And the systems through which we worship God are good. 
I've said this multiple times today, but every Sunday when we come together, there's a system and a rhythm for the way that we worship God together because we're called to do that in an orderly fashion, also mixed with freedom and being spirit-led and all those things coming together for this wonderful, awesome expression of corporate worship. But sometimes we allow the fact that we worship God systematically to affect the way that we see God. And we start to want to see God very systematically. We start to want to take parts of Scripture and compartmentalize them and put them all together and say, okay, if this is true, plus this is true, plus this is true, then this must be true all the time. And we start to create all of these little isms in Christianity. Whether it's denominationally or just theological subgroups, we start to divide things up and identify ourselves by these terms that we could say, this is who I am, this is what I believe about God, and if it comes, anything comes outside of this ism or outside of this system, I have to reject it and turn away from it. In fact, much of what we believe as a church corporate tends to come from systems and traditions more than out of Scripture itself. But, verse 7 is an ism breaker. Because the reality is, if we can summarize our view of God in one ism or a few isms or just a few short words, then we're probably missing something. And in verse 7, at least for me, this passage of scripture is one of those things that breaks me out of my isms and out of my systematic way of viewing God and helps me realize how complex and wonderful he really is. Because this is what it says. The Lord said, I, excuse me, I will blot out him who I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I made them. God is looking at his creation, everything that he had made, and he says, I wish I didn't create it. He was sorry and grieved to the heart about his creation. See, in the first five chapters, we've been looking at this God who has a big plan. That before the foundation of the world, God had a plan for not only how he was going to create the world, but how he was going to redeem the world and how he was going to restore the world. We've seen a God who acts sovereignly, putting everything exactly where it should go, putting systems into the universe. And so the universe keeps spinning and keeps moving, putting systems into the ground. And so the ground itself is bringing forth plants and trees. A God who has his fingerprints on everything that's happened all throughout the story. A God filled with grace and with mercy on top of mercy on top of mercy. But here we see something from this God that we haven't seen before. In fact, something that seems counter to the very personality and nature of God, we see God show regret. And at least for me, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but for me, of all of God's traits, this may be the hardest one for me to grasp. And to reconcile with the systems that I see and that I try to put on Scripture. Because we have to ask the question, how could a God who is infinitely powerful, 
a God who we sang the word omniscient, a God who is all-knowing, a God who has carefully orchestrated and planned everything that takes place, how could this perfect and holy God regret anything at all, especially something that he did? He said, I'm sorry that I made them. When we look at Genesis in particular, we see from the very beginning that God had a plan to reveal himself. We've talked about the fact that God didn't have to create anything, that God gained nothing. He was perfect and holy and wonderful for all eternity past and would be for all eternity future if we never existed at all. But he still wanted us. He had a desire to create us. And part of that is that he wanted to have a relationship with us. He wanted to fellowship with us. And to do that, he was going to reveal himself in full. And this is who God is. He is a God who is sovereign and holy. He is a God who is creative and wonderful. He is a God who is a good father who loves intimately and compassionately his creation. He's a God who is rich in grace and mercy, but he's also a God of justice and wrath who sets wrong things to right and hates sin and evil and wants it gone from his world. All of these things had to take place. And so for that to happen, to know God as judge, to know God as just, To know God is gracious and merciful. To know God is a redeemer. Something had to be redeemed. And so sin had to be part of what was taking place for God to reveal himself in full. But it grieved him to the heart. And here we see a conflict in the nature of God. God's sovereignty. God's plan. God's will in conflict with God's desire. And this is something that doesn't just arrive in this passage of Scripture. Think about when we're told that God is patient, not in the way that some count patient, but he is slow to anger, desiring that no one should perish, but that everyone should come to the truth of the gospel. God's desire is that every single person would come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and yet we know that's not going to happen. And we know that because God is all-powerful and God is sovereign over salvation, that God is the one whom salvation belongs to, that if he wanted to snap his fingers and everyone follow after Christ, he could, and yet he doesn't. And so we see God acting for the good of his will and his plan against his desire. But if we want to think about it more on a a ground-level point of view, maybe taking it out of the cosmic and looking at a very intense moment in the life of Christ. We know that before Jesus went to the cross on that Good Friday that we celebrated just a week ago, that Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the Word of God made flesh, God incarnate, the exact nature and imprint of God in human form, that Jesus went to the garden and he got down on his hands and his knees and prayed and said, I know this is how we're going to do this. I know this is how we're going to save the world, but I don't want to do it this way. If there's any other way we can do this, let's do it another way. If this cup could just pass from me, let it pass, but not my will but yours be done the desire and sovereignty in conflict. We have a tendency, at least I have a tendency, 
to think about God's sovereignty as something so rigid. And because of that, thinking of God as some sort of unmoved divine machine. And while there are parts of God that never change, we know that his character never changes. That he is always faithful, that he is always good, that he is always sovereign and holy and just. That his promises never change. That when God makes a promise, he will bring that promise to fruition. And we're going to see that over the next few days as we look at the story of Noah. And we see a God who makes a promise and a God who will always keep his promises. We know that his plan is unwavering. That before the foundation of the world, God knew that sin was going to enter into the world. That he had a plan to bring about salvation. And in Genesis chapter 3, we saw that promise where God said to the serpent, One day, all of this will be undone. That God knew in the fullness of time, he would bring his one and only son into the world to offer himself as a ransom for many so that we can have faith and hope and eternal life. And that plan and that promise will never change. But we see here that he does, at times, feel regret. That God, at times, is sorry. That he feels remorse. And as we look through the pages of Scripture, we find times when God even changes his mind about how he interacts in temporary relationships, when we see God relent from disaster or bring judgment because of the actions of people. And so when we come to God, We have to come not trying to fit him in to our systems because here we see a God who breaks our systems. And we need to learn to be in awe of who he really is, recognizing that he is a steadfast, unchanging God who is moved by and for his creation. A God who is grieved by sin and bears the weight of creation and his plan for it. Which leads us to what we see next. That he's not only a God that breaks our system, but he's also a God who emotes. He's an emotional God. Every generation, at least certain groups in every generation, and I think especially in the Christian world throughout Christian history, every generation believes that things are getting worse. We have a tendency to believe that our generation was better, and we look down on the generations that come after us, look what they're doing to this world, look what they're doing to everything that happens. But also we look at the things that are going on around us, and we think that couldn't have possibly ever been worse. Look at all the heartache, look at all the tragedy, look at all the violence and the hatred, look at all the things that are happening in our world. It couldn't possibly get any worse than this. But remember... World War I, they called it the war to end all wars, and then just a few years later, an even bigger one came along. But long before that, there were wars that were just as horrific and just as tragic. And when we look at Genesis 6, we find out that really things aren't getting worse at all. That as long as sin has been a part of humanity, things have been pretty awful. I mean, just listen to how Genesis describes the world. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's hard to describe the world in much worse terms than those. That wickedness of men was great on the earth and every intention of the thoughts, 
every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, not just sometimes, but continually. And here we have this picture of how deeply sin really runs throughout not just humanity, but throughout human history. And so we see this picture here where sin and wickedness and evil were running rampant over and through his good and perfect creation, and it was more than he could stand. And there is this temptation to think of God as generally emotionless. And we talk about the love of God, but for us a lot of times that love is more ideological. And maybe we think about it through the cross and the resurrection. And maybe we think about Jesus being emotional. But it's easy to think about God the Father as this distant emotional being somewhere off in the distance. Who has an ideological love and maybe some flashes of anger and wrath. But for the most part, it's easy to see him as a mostly static, stoic spirit in the sky. But this isn't how God introduces himself. This isn't how God reveals himself throughout these passages of Scripture. In Genesis 1, we see him as a passionate artist with a creative heart, putting everything where it should go, speaking life, and even singing over his creation. As we have this poem in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, where God declares that he's creating humanity in his own image. In Genesis 2, we see God as a loving and compassionate father who gives his children everything they need for life and freedom and goodness. In Genesis 3, we see a God grieved by the rebellion of his children. In Genesis 4, we see a God angry over the death of one of his own but also a God rich in mercy and love and grace. Every page of Genesis is all about the emotional nature of God, that he is a loving, compassionate, but also a God who is willing to be angry and moved and even broken over the actions of his creation. We see so many emotions and so much complexity. We see the fullness of who God is on display. Here we see this passage of Scripture in verse 5 and verse 6. It says that the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. The God of the universe, who did not need us, but created us anyway, who gained nothing from us, but wanted us in his world and in his creation. The God who loved us that intimately, the God who has the power to hang stars in the sky, saw the sinfulness in the world, and it grieved him to his heart. But this shouldn't take us by surprise, because we're emotional people. We have the full range of emotions, good and bad, and everything in between. And those emotions didn't just appear from nowhere. We were created in the image of God. And in their purest form, our emotions are a reminder of that image in our lives. And our sin takes those things and changes them and perverts them and messes them up. But in the purest of what our emotions are, it's God's image in and through us. And we see here that God is not apathetic to sin. Nor is God simply angered by sin. Yes, as we're going to see in just a moment, it angers God. But he's not simply angered by sin. He's grieved by sin. 
And then we also recognize here that in the same way, that as God is grieved to the heart by sin and is sent into movement to correct that, God is not unmoved by our pain. God is not unmoved by our sorrow. God is not unmoved by our joys and our successes and our tragedies and our failures. We have a God, as we see all throughout Scripture, a God who grieves with us when we grieve, a God who mourns with us when we mourn, a God who delights in our joys, and a God who suffers with us even as we see Christ enduring all sorts of things so that we have a high priest who is not unfamiliar with our tragedy but has walked through them with us. And so we don't have an unfeeling, uncaring God in the distance or a father who is unable to know how we feel, but a God who emotes and is delighted in our delights and grieved with our grievances and brokenhearted over our sin. And so we need to learn to see God in this way. And not simply recognize this for our own ideological purposes, but to recognize that if this is who God is, then it should change how we respond to him as well. And so we need to learn to live like sin breaks the heart of God. And that our prayers and our songs move it. That God is dynamic and interacting with us each and every day. And that when we sin, he doesn't stand off in the distance. But that sin, yes, angers him. But it also breaks his heart, especially for those of us who follow after Christ. Because he's given everything so that we can be delivered from that sin, only to return back into it. And it breaks his heart for us. But also we need to recognize that when we come together and pray and sing, that God doesn't just sit off in the distance and listen to it and enjoy it, but he's moved by our prayers and our worship. And so we need to learn to live like we have a God who not only breaks our systems and our conceptions of who he is, but a God who emotes and is emotional and is moved by the lives of his people. But then, of course, we also see finally here that God does get angry. And we see in this passage of Scripture a God who had had enough. Because this is the world. Sinful, evil, breaking the heart of God. And then he speaks. And this is what he says. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds for the heavens. For I am sorry that I made them. It's amazing to look at this passage in contrast with Genesis chapter 4. Remember how God responds to Cain. He is furious. Because Cain had killed his brother, destroyed the community in which God had placed them, all for pride and jealousy and nothing substantial. And so God is overwhelmed with anger and brokenness towards Cain, and he lashes out at him saying, what have you done? And he drops a hammer of judgment. There are consequences for Cain's sin. But when Cain cries out in fear, God reminds him that, no, I'm still here. And he gives Cain mercy that he could not ever have earned. But when God's patience runs out, as it does here in Genesis chapter 6, it's a horrifying thing. 
the effects of sin had dug their claws deep into God's creation. And remember, we talked about this in Genesis chapter 3, that it wasn't just humanity that was stained because of sin, but the ground itself was cursed because of it, because there was this good and holy thing that God had created, this temple that God had made for himself, and we desecrated that temple by taking the image of God and turning it into something perverse and bringing it inside the Holy of Holies. And the ground itself was cursed because of it. The the effects of sin ran deep to the core of God's creation. And when he looked at it and he saw the good thing that he had made turned into what it was here in Genesis chapter 6, he decided that he was ready to purge it. He said, I am going to blot out man from the world that I created. That is a very big, promise that God is making here. That is a heavy judgment that God is bringing down on the world. But even still, his compassion breaks through. Because we see verse 8. And I love just in the the flow of, of how the ESV phrases this. There's a break right after this verse. And it just draws a almost a highlighter around verse 8. Because God says, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds from the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You see, while God constantly breaks our systems as he reveals himself to us, God also works within systems. And all through scripture, we see patterns as God is working in a way that is constant with his character and his nature and who he is. And one of the things that happens, especially all through the Old Testament, that we see in full after Christ through the New Testament in the church, that no matter how bad things get, no matter how much corruption runs rampant in the world, no matter how much God's people rebel against him and run away from him and sin against him, that no matter how widespread that is, God is always reserving for himself a remnant of the faithful. That God never allows it to go so far out of control. And this is where we see God's sovereignty working. Because he could have and should have just wiped everything off the face of the earth. He could have snapped and it would have existed no more. And he could have started all over. But he didn't. He found a remnant. And in the person of Noah, we have a picture of hope in the midst of tragedy. A picture of faithfulness in the midst of faithlessness. And even more importantly, we have a foreshadowing of a better hope to come. When one day, even though the world was dark and sinful and broken, God was going to send forth a representative. God was going to bring his Messiah into the world and through the faithfulness of one man was going to redeem many. And as we look at Noah here, we need to realize that Noah wasn't perfect. But as verse 9 tells us, he walked with God. And because of that, he found favor with God and was chosen to carry on the promise that God had made when he made a covenant with his creation. 
to fulfill that promise and to carry on that promise that God made in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 to allow humanity to continue even though our sin was great and was bringing about restoration and redemption to his people. And that story we'll get to next week. Let's pray.